welcome to Your Best Riding Life, an extension of the Blue Ridge Mountains Christian Riders Conference held in the beautiful Blue Ridge Mountains of North Carolina. I'm your host, Linda Goldfarb. Each week I bring you tips and strategies from experts in the writing and publishing industry to help you excel in your craft. And I am so very glad that you're listening in today. Today, with my industry expert, we're going to be talking about how to study writing form. And who is that expert, you may ask? Well, it's none other than Janet McHenry. Janet has written 24 books, including the best-selling Prayer Walk. And because she has written in eight different book genres, yeah, she may be her agent's nightmare client. But that's okay for us, because in doing so, she has learned how to analyze writing form which she teaches at conferences and her own Sierra Valley Writers Retreat. And she's going to be sharing that with us here today. It is so good to have her here. Welcome. Welcome to your best writing life, Janet. So glad to be here with you today, Linda. Thank you for asking. Oh, I can't wait. There's things I know I'm going to learn. So I'm, I'm like, <laughs> I have the recording, so I'm not so much going to be taking notes, but I know we're going to have a lot in the show notes for all of our listeners. This is going to be fabulous. Well, Janet, I always enjoy peeking behind the curtain of the life of my industry expert, especially the first time that they come on as a guest here on Your Best Writing Life. And so I'd like to ask you if you would share something that maybe we would not find on your bio. I would say um, the thing that was most exciting in, in, mo in the recent years was when Craig and I got to travel to Israel, where I was able to speak in several locations where Jesus actually prayed. And I got to speak on prayer there. Mm -hmm. And what's so great is now that I'm, when I'm reading the Bible, I actually can see those places in my mind where he walked and where he taught and where he prayed. And I totally recommend that for anyone who has the opportunity. I will tell you, Israel is a location that Sam and I would love to visit. We would love to go there. And if the Lord allows that to happen, we will be very, very excited. So I'll just kind of have to vicariously visit through you <laughs> and what you have talked about or shared about on your Facebook page and everywhere else on, on your trip. I know it had to be a life-impacting time for you. So glad you were able to do it. What we're going to do now is we are going to go directly into the content. So I'm going to ask you to guide us through how to study writing form. So let's get going here. What challenged you to consider breaking down the expression, quote, study the form? It's actually been about 30 years or so since I started going to Christian Writers Conferences. And uh, if you've attended a conference, you know you've heard things said like, show, don't tell, or write what you know. And I was able to kind of figure those out eventually or through workshops. Others taught me about that. But there was one expression that I didn't understand and that I didn't find explained to me either. And that's when a teacher would say, study the form, study the form. Okay. Mm -hmm. We probably all heard that, but we may not have actually had the opportunity to think through what that means. That's what you're going to share with us today. You're going to be able to break this down and to help us understand the concept better, right? Exactly. 
And what that will do is kind okay. of take us back to maybe your high school English class, I hate to say, or maybe your rhetoric 101 class or an English class you had in college where instead of simply reading a book for pleasure, enjoying the language, enjoying the pace of the novel, that you're actually examining what the writer is doing as opposed to what the writer is saying. So we're looking to see mm. when uh, a writer is offering an analogy or is making an argument or is offering a comparison in some way or is using figurative language to explain an idea. So we're going down to the basics of language itself and how writers use it. Okay, this is going to be really great. Where would a writer start to learn to study a form? First, I would suggest that you find a mentor book, you know, that a book that can teach you how to structure a new genre that you might be attempting. Um, for example, years ago, uh, I had been doing some writing for children and I'd been uh, starting to do some writing Christian living kinds of books. And then I was challenged to uh, do a devotional book. So I didn't know exactly how to put those pieces together. So what I did was find several great devotional books that I had on my shelves and began breaking down the pieces of those particular writing forms so that I could use that not to copy, but to emulate with my own particular style, my own language. And uh, I think that's where we can start. So you've got that book in front of you and say it's a, maybe a Bible study, for example. And in front of me, I chose a moody Bible study called The Way Home. And this is by Tessa Afshar. It's been an award-winning book and it's called Ruth. And the subtitle is God's Invitation to New Beginnings. And so what I would do is open that up and I would first look at the table of contents. I would examine to see whether there are sections of the book, are there actual divisions of the chapters in the books themselves, and to think through how they are titled and think through, well, why are they titled in that way? Uh, in nonfiction, what we're doing is we're taking someone from a place of a problem through a process to a plan of some kind for change. Look at the table of contents and you can begin to see the process that the writer is creating for, for the reader. Then I will look to see the chapters themselves, how they're titled. How did the writer actually title those chapters? You're looking at language again there to see if there, what is the process of that progress that the, that the writer wants to take the reader from the beginning to the end. And as I'm as I'm speaking to you right now, I'm creating this imaginary horizontal line with my fingers, as I used to do with my students, to say that, well, there's a line of persuasion, and you're taking that reader from the beginning to the end. You're going to offer hope by the end of that book, but you have to think about where they are. So you're going to look to see mm -hmm. how those chapters are actually titled to, to give some sort of indication of the process that they will go through. You also examine um, in the table of contents if there's extra material. 
Is, are there some kind of appendices? Are there other kinds of offerings in the book themselves that are particularly labeled there? And think through the whys of that. Sometimes people offer uh, study guides, other resources to read, a plan of some kind, places for journaling. And so those all can become kinds of things that you think about, options that you could include in your book. So that's the next step. So first, we talked about finding the mentor book. Second, studying the table of contents. And then I have one that I call count. For those of us who are not necessarily mathematically bent, that sounds scary, but it's actually pretty simple. (laughs) (laughs) A typical um, Christian living book is going to be around 48,000 words, okay? So uh, you would look to see the numbers of chapters and so that you could get an idea of uh, what is that chapter chunk going to look like? There are 12 chapters, then there are probably about 4,000 words in that chapter. If there are 16 chapters, there are probably going to be about 3,000 words in that chapter. And you're going to notice that chapters are balanced. Chapters are balanced. You're not going to have a really short one and a very long one. As a whole in the Christian industry, we're finding that people's attention spans are shorter all the time. I love that about the link books, by the way, Linda. <laughs> Those are short and sweet. <laughs> Those are great. Um, so what we want to be able to Thank do you. is offer those pieces of argument that we're going to be making with the reader. And always think of language as always an argument. Think of all of our language as an argument of some kind. And that argument is meant to offer hope eventually for uh, the Christian reader. So we're going to then look at the chapters themselves. And I have been known to actually, yes, literally count. I count things like in a given chapter, is it broken down into three sections or four sections? So is there an introductory anecdote there that I could take a look at? How long is that introductory anecdote, uh, the story from the writer herself, how much space did she actually take up there in terms of numbers of words? Are there maybe three different other headings in that chapter? And how long is each of those sections in the chapter themselves? You want to kind of balance that out. Those divisions within a chapter don't always have to be even, but probably they should be. They should be as a whole. You want to offer enough to the reader that they find value in reading each part of your book. Um, so, yeah, I've been known to count. <laughs> and I did that when um, I <laughs> created some proposals for devotional books and tried to figure out exactly, you know, how many words, if I want to have a 30-day devotional book or How many uh, words would I have if I want to have a 60-day devotional book? And a really good resource uh, for readers, in fact, if you are thinking about writing a devotional book, is uh, a book by David Sluka called uh, Devotional Writing. The full title is 16 Ways to Create Devotional Writing to Renew the Spirit and Refresh the Soul. And he actually has word count for the different lengths of devotional books. So it, it can spell that out for you much more easily than taking the time to uh, to do all that math, um, which we writers often right. don't like. <laughs> so you'll notice again in the chapter itself, as you're counting, there's going to be a balance. Um, and I also encourage writers 
to have a balance between anecdote, which is your personal story or someone's personal story that you are bringing in and the actual teaching material. You'll notice that in a, for example, in a Christian living book, uh, you probably don't want more than one third personal anecdote so that you have at least two thirds teaching. That's because, hello, the Christian book is not all about us. Even um, in telling a memoir, it's not all about us. It's about what, what you have learned, what you have gained through this experience, what, what the Bible has taught you, what life has taught you. And so we, offer, we need to offer our readers um, excellence in our writing. So that makes us take the time to do intense teaching, not just tell story. So, and I'm speaking to the nonfiction writer here a lot, but you'll find by the end of this that there are many applications for uh, writing a novel as well. So we've talked about three separate steps here, finding the example, um, study the table of contents, doing that counting, breaking down the pieces. And then the next would be to take a particular look at the chapter sequence itself. Think about how the writer progresses that overall chapter theme throughout the book. And then also remembering that if a nonfiction book is an argument, how is that argument being developed? And play with that a lot Mm -hmm. as you're considering chapter titles and thinking about a logical progression of thought to move that reader from one place to another. Simply because my experience may have, have allowed for a certain progression may not necessarily mean that that is the best logical sequence for those chapter ideas for someone else. So it's something to to play a lot with. And if you begin doing a lot of brainstorming with sticky notes, those provide the opportunity to shift those kinds of things out clearly for you in a visual kind of a way. So now we've looked at the overall kind of structure of a book. The next thing that we'll want to do is we'll want to look at the ebb and flow of paragraphs and sentences and actual paragraph transitions. And so what I have my students do is that I give them different colored markers and I have them, I I print out a chapter of a book and one of mine. And while I always say, this is not necessarily the ideal chapter <laughs> that you might, might <laughs> certainly might, you know, there are others whose writing is uh, more stellar, but it's a way to give you an idea of how you can sequence the different kinds of writing that you're going to include in a chapter. And so then I'll have them with their pink marker. I might have them put a box around everything that is anecdotal in nature. It's a, it's a story. You're leading in and probably your chapter lead in is anecdotal. And then I'll have them with the yellow marker. I would have them maybe uh, highlight anything that is an argument of some kind. You know, they're making a claim of some kind. For example, if you want to have a deeper life of prayer, you should schedule it on your calendar because life happens. So that's kind of a, a claim. It's a statement that I'm making. And then I have them with another colored marker. If they see a sentence that is more explanatory, in other words, it takes that claim and it breaks it down. It helps explain it more. 
then, then that's another shift that the writer is making. Simply because we have said something one way doesn't mean that the reader is going to get it. You know, we have to, uh, we make right. a claim, we make a statement, we explain what that means. Then we can go into examples. That's a different kind of writing. Okay, show that. Now show that with your writing. Take someone else's story or your own story about how you learned that. You know, as a busy mom, as someone who worked full time as a high school English teacher, I found, didn't find that. I never had time to pray. You know, then when I learned to bring prayer into my lifestyle, my walking lifestyle, I learned that I became a prayer walker and my vision for prayer changed. That's an example that you could use to support the claim that you've made. And then good writers also will use biblical text. So that's another thing that you would bring into your argument. And notice when writers and how writers bring biblical text into their writing, that you're not going to just copy paste it from Bible Gateway. Please don't do that. Lead into it in some way. And that could be as simple as in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus prayed like this. So I've not just plopped. Mm. When we cut and paste scripture and just plop it in there with quotes around it, I call that plopping. <laughs> and I always tell my students, <laughs> no plopping, no plopping is allowed. So lead into it, help the reader understand how you're going to shift, how you're making another transition. To, oh, she's bringing Bible stuff in. And then you're going to cite that. Notice how writers cite it, do that correctly, use the translation that you're using as well. And then don't just leave it there. You know, don't just plop it. Even if you've led into it, explain what you mean. We can't assume that the writer gets your point. And in fact, scientific studies have showed that people read over quotes. When they see quoted text in the book, they just skip beyond the quote. So that's one reason we want to lead them in. Another way you can bring in Bible teaching is to summarize, to simply it's put it in your own words. Do that well, <laughs> but put it in your own words and then cite it. Or you can paraphrase. Paraphrasing is when you have a longer text and you shrink it down to a, a shorter, much shorter summary. So the, notice those different ways that your good mentor book is dealing with biblical text. And again, after you've brought the biblical text in as part of the teaching, then it's your responsibility to now teach what that means. So don't just leave it there. Finish that paragraph off nicely by explaining and explaining and explaining. And that might sound boring, mm -hmm. boring, boring, but those sentences won't all mean the same thing. They'll offer just a little bit of a different tweak because each of us can be appealed to in different ways, right? So, and you can use a statement like, imagine that, or, you know, what Jesus means here is what, or what I think Jesus means here is, you know, things like that. Or what I found this to be true in my own life is that. So there are various ways to offer that teaching piece as well. So that's pieces there that, uh, that I offer in terms of learning to study the form. And I think if you just take a book Commit to marking it up well, you know, a book that you admire in the genre that you want to write, and then mark it up well. Take note of what that good writer is doing, and then emulate that yourself. Use it as kind of a blueprint for the plan that you have for your particular book, and it will just soar. You will find the pieces come together.
What I've seen happen is that writers begin to understand that beyond their own experience, there may be a different way to explain how a process can occur. For example, I write on prayer. I've written uh, six books on prayer. And um, my passion is to help people find a deeper prayer life. So through my own experience has been valuable for me. But recently I learned when I was speaking that someone said, but Janet, I can't walk. So what will I do? Then that became an idea for another book. You know, uh, arrogant me thinking that everybody can just go out and prayer walk and it will fit into their lifestyle. So those ideas then we can take and we can break them down for people and help them from the place where they are. So that place of hurt or whatever, the problem that they have, the pain they have at the beginning, and then you show a process through your chapters till they get to that place of healing or hope at the end of the book. And I just enjoy so much helping writers see those light bulbs on as they begin to look at writing sure. and they see, um, okay, so she's generalizing here or she's evaluating something or she's expanding on that idea. And to think about uh, writing verbs that writers use and then incorporate that in your own writing as well. Everything that you've said so far, I'm just connecting right with you. And I'm going, yes. We can do this. Yes. This is good. <laughs> yes. Yes. Now, how does someone start taking that step if they want to write in a new genre? What would you recommend? Start with that mentor book. Okay. For example, okay. I've written um, two books for First Place for Health, which is like a Christian Weight Watchers organization. But instead of going to meetings, where uh, you hear a pitch, you do a Bible study together that's produced by that company. And um, I was I noticed in their line of the many Bible studies that they produce that they didn't have one about Jesus. So I said, we need a Bible study on Jesus. So what I did was I actually opened up one of the books and I looked at their chapters. I looked at, okay, okay, what happens in the introduction? What happens on the first day? Oh, they start with a, a scripture. And then there's an introductory paragraph that offers background into the, ta you know, into the concept that's going to be taught that day. They started with simple questions that could be answered directly from the text. Then they shifted to some that were more complex in nature, more why questions or how questions. And then they shifted to application questions. So it became a, a quick study to learn how to write specifically for that particular kind of Bible study. So you go down and you take a look at objectively at those pieces and then create your own outline based on that. I think that, again, we, you know, as writers, we want to make sure that our writing is not simply a research paper. Um, I know lots of writers mm. who will research, 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 they'll research something to death, and then they pull all those research piece, pieces together with their name on the cover. It's really important as writers to be able to offer new content. And um, in that, when I talked about chapter structure as a whole in terms of um, personal anecdote, your own story versus the, the teaching portion, that teaching portion, certainly you can bring others' ideas in there, but it is also really important to have fresh new ideas because ev why even write your book if it's already out there? You know, if you're bringing in so many sources from so many different places, um, 
it that's just kind of a research paper as opposed to um, something that should be new on the shelf. So um, yeah, that's what I would do. And I would take a look. I would study that carefully and break that down. I pulled several books off the shelf today. If I were going to write uh, another, and I do have plans to write a couple of uh Christian Living Books, I might take a look at, uh, for example, Sandra Dalton Smith's book that came out a couple years ago called Sacred Rest. And I would go to the table contents. I see that she has one, two, three different sections in her just in her table of contents. Why rest? The gifts of rest? The promises of rest? So there's she's moving the reader from a place of question and problem through a process to the promise at the end of the book. And then you can notice the progression of ideas from chapter to chapter. You can notice the progression of idea. Each chapter will have one overall single concept that will be there that the writer is developing for the reader. So every single chapter focused on a different concept that is part of that process. So um, super fun. It is. It is super fun. It is. It is super. Fun. It is super fun. And I know. Um, I know. Pantsers out there are going to be going like, I can't do that. I can't do that. I can't do that. Yeah. But the, the problem is, um, then I put my editor's hat on and say, Oh, I wish you would. Particularly, I think with nonfiction, because you know there is a certain structure, and editors and agents will be looking at your proposal, looking at your ideas. They know that they know the structure, they know what works well, and they will want have certain expectations in terms of what you're, you know, what they see has worked and what you're offering them. That's one reason that I tell new writers who, are, for example, are coming to my writing retreats, please stop writing, stop writing at this point. Um, and nobody says that I may be the only person on the universe uh, teaching writing who might say that. Well, let's let's stop it for a time. Put it on pause. Maybe pause is a better word. Uh, and then actually examine the form itself and then go back and see how you can bring your own excellence, your own new ideas, you know, your own new freshness to this concept within the place of good writing structure. I can gravitate to that stop writing because there's times I get too involved and I'm too much in my head and I need to step back. Do you find that everyone listens to you and stops? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's some who feel they just, they want to get it down. They want to get it down. And that might be someone who has more of like a, a memoir kind of approach and that because they, they feel okay. that the book is their story and that can work within one of the memoir kinds of structures. But if you want to write in a different genre, that's probably not going to work. You know, that you have to think about the process itself, taking that person from that place of pain to a place of promise at the end of the book. And what are the logical steps to move that person there? And that may or may not be your story. You know, and I think um, mm. I did have one editor tell me something once when I got a rejection and he, he was kind enough to offer why. And he said, this is really bigger than your story, Janet. The problem is bigger than just your story. And your story is not big enough for this big concept. Mm. And he offered the, the idea also to bring in um, others painful experiences, others' travels, others' journeys through, you know, their valley of pain to be able to explain ideas throughout the book. 
So that was an eye opener because I thought my books were all about me. <laughs> and uh, no, they're not, you know, um, we're not the only person on the planet, but um, others actual uh, aha moments, others discoveries, others ideas um, may be much better than anything that we could offer the reader. So I think I would encourage writers to be open that as well. Very good. If you have anything else that you want to add to this, you have given us so much. I think um, one thing to think about in terms of paragraph structure, I learned from um, my editor, Liz Haney, who worked with me on four of my prayer books with uh, Waterbrook. And she, <laughs> she wouldn't let me get away with that whole plopping idea of just like sticking a scripture there and making the reader figure it out. She said, really, Janet, good writing form is that you're making a claim at the beginning of your sentence, and then you're explaining what that means. You're bringing in biblical text. You're explaining what that means. You're bringing in an example that helps illustrate that overall idea, and you're explaining what that means. And then you're going back and you're, you're showing how the biblical text and the example you've used go back and help support that claim you've made at the beginning of your paragraph. And that's why at the beginning of this, I said, we're going back to Rhetoric 101 here, your high school English class, because that is just really good paragraph structure. And it doesn't mean that every single paragraph is going to look that way. Some are going to be more anecdotal in nature. And, you know, of course, when we're telling a good story, we're using dialogue. And so the paragraphs are, may look a little regular that way. But when you're making an argument, never assume, you know, never assume that the, re the reader can kind of figure it out. She would, she would always say, um, explain, explain, explain. <laughs> and I think we owe, um, as writers, we owe our readers to do that kind of good work. Very nice. Got a question that I asked my first time guest, Janet McHenry, what brings you joy? I, there are a lot of things that bring me joy and I had to kind of stop there for a second and really ponder that as, as long as my personality allows me to do that. <laughs> but I would say that, uh, you know, the practice of prayer walking has brought great joy into my life. It lifted depression and lifted mm -hmm. all kinds of fears that I had. And it, it has made me uh, a changed person as particularly at, also, as I see answered prayer in my communities, as I've been praying for my community now for 23 years, as I walk and pray through uh, the little town of Loyalton here in the Sierra Valley, in the uh, Sierra Nevada mountain range. And um, part of that is that God's allowed us to uh, have a home here for 40 years. And my all-time favorite thing might be uh, actually hospitality. I love having people in my home. Mm. I love having overnight guests. I love having folks to dinner. I, I then I love just kind of standing back and watching it happen, you know, watching conversation occur and relationships develop. So that's truly a joy, um, as well as we just love where we live. We live in a mountain valley that's as large as Lake Tahoe, which is an hour south of us. And I tell people it's, um, it's actually just like Lake Tahoe, except without the water. And um, we're so we have beautiful mountains all the way around us, and we like going to the local lakes in our area. There are natural lakes here, and and kayaking. And that is, if I can get the rancher guy 
off the ranch uh, for a day or an afternoon at least and going kayaking, that's been a really good day. Oh, that sounds so inviting and so wonderful. That would bring me joy. (laughs) Absolutely. This is good. This is good. As we wrap up, I wanted to talk about, I know that you have a coaching business. Yes. And you do have the Sierra Valley Riders Retreat. I'd like you to take a moment and just tell us a little bit about what you offer as a coach. And then also about your retreat and when are the next events coming up? I'm um, a certified life coach and with a, a specialty in helping writers Uh, develop their book concepts. Uh, I love helping them put together a proposal that they could pitch to an agent or an editor, or to just simply help them through the writing of that book itself, its structure, getting the ideas down on paper, giving them deadlines. But I also enjoy helping um, just individuals, anyone uh, discover their God-given person for their life. Uh, you know, why has God put them on this earth? Do they have sort of a, a sense of mission? Do they have a passion that um, they want to see better developed in their life? And so it's been fun to, to also help people learn what their slice of the pie is. I mean, they, you know, you can't do everything when you discover that. Then how do you begin focusing on that and moving forward in your life? So that's what I do with my coaching. It's just simply Janet McHenry Coaching. And then the writer retreat, uh, I will be hosting the fifth of those this coming weekend. Uh, we're recording uh, early in November, so it will have already happened. But I bring in uh, four different writers, and they're from all kinds of walks of life. I've had Alice Kreider here. I've had Mona Hodgson, who directed the Mount Hermon Conference. I've had Pam Farrell, who's written 50 books. But then I've had people who haven't even written a blog yet. So um, it's been a fantastic experience of kind of coaching them through learning uh, book genre form, uh, chapter form, how to structure chapters, how to do storyboarding to complete a book outline in, in an hour, an hour or two. It's time to be able to see it fleshed out completely. We do uh, some critiquing of one another. And then I also talk about how to use your life experience to uh, do natural kinds of social media marketing. So all of those pieces together Mm. and uh, we have a lot of fun and good food. (laughs) How many do you get to have at one time? Did you say four and everybody has their own room. Everyone has their own space and um, you share a bathroom with one other person. So we have a guest house uh, right next to our house. So and it's a full apartment that can hold two people. And then we have two people uh, who can have their own bedrooms downstairs. And then Greg and I have our little suite upstairs. So it works out great. And we'll have all of those links, folks, so that you'll be able to find out more about Janet. You'll be able to connect with her in a lot of different areas. And what we have for you as a giveaway is going to be Janet's Five Ways to Study Writing Form you're going to love it. It's going to tie everything together. And what a great concept for us to be able to come together today and learn so much about. I love it. Janet, thank you so much for being here with us. You have brought us something that's going to make a difference in how we view our current genre and also in how we can look at writing in another genre. The steps that you have shown us 
make it very easy. So I like that a lot. Thank you, Linda. It's been a pleasure. And folks, thank you so much for joining us. Please take a moment to subscribe, rate, and review because you know what you have to say matters as much as what you have to write. This is Linda Goldfarb, and I look forward to being with you here next time on Your Best Writing Life.